Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Trout. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic and you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, and their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're an every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic, we're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Scheid is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Well, Father Dan, welcome back to your podcast, After the Homily. Great to be back. I, I thought we'd talk today, you know, play on terms laymen, not all laymen, but laymen, and the sort of the current state and the role of, of men in the church. Any of our listeners would know that there's a lot of discussion today about what is a woman, but there's not a corresponding discussion for the most part about what is a man. And more relevant perhaps to our discussion is what is a, what is a good Catholic man? I sort of, I can think of a definition or a picture maybe, but you know, what, what is a good man and what is that good man's role in his family life if he's called to marriage, but maybe more specifically in the life of the church. So the, the role of men beyond the ordained men like you to husbands and fathers and grandfathers and and sons and, and the day-to-day life of the Catholic church. Wonderful. Chris, I've been thinking about this topic that you have proposed, <laughs> not only for years being a man myself, but recently I've been pondering the figure of Noah, uh, the, the bibli- biblical mm. patriarch who appears in the chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapters six through nine. And as children, when we run across the story of, of this man and the task that he's given by God in the midst of what is described as just the civilizational horrific evils of the world, (laughs) here's this this one man called to a mission that has world historical implications for the victory of the goodness of God. So I'd like to pursue our meditation on what a Catholic man is in light of this figure of Noah, because of course, as children, when we come across it, it it becomes a, a kind of, a fanciful tale of how how do all of the animals get in the ark? You know how how do all those four hundred thousand species of beetles, not the musical group, the <laughs> the class of insects, how do they get in in the boat? And then somebody yeah. you know builds a replica of of the ark in Kentucky, and <laughs> right. people go there and and the actual meditation on our humanity is eclipsed or uh, elided over. So the fact that 
Noah is a man and he's given the responsibility for building an ark. Well, what is an ark? A home. An ark is ultimately a home. And it's a home that doesn't drown in what surrounds it, but actually, in a sense, rides on top of it. it it's a protected ecosystem, but one very much in the world, this floating mobile home of... I mean, is it home. fair to say his assignment was to save humanity? The Lord gives him a civilizational task. And so <laughs> in, the, in the case of, of women, the very physiology of the woman at the center is, is the womb, the possibility of becoming a home for another human life, that, that mystery, that, that mission, even if it's realized beyond natural motherhood, there's an interiority to it that, that's irreducible, that is lived in a different way by males. And so the task of, of the male to cultivate an interior life, to dedicate his life sacrificially at the service of life, of lives beyond his own. Again, uh, however naturally that uh, is realized, there, there are extra, all sorts of spiritual dimensions surrounding that, penetrating that. So the question becomes, how does a man undertake this mission from the Lord to place his whole life at the service of human flourishing in the divine plan. So Noah takes responsibility and that word, the, uh, the ability to become a sponsus, literally a spouse, that ability to place his life at the service of, of caring for, of nurturing, raising up other people is, is the, it's, it's the nobility and, and also the challenge of, of what it is to be a man. And oftentimes, at least for the past few decades in the church, there's been a lot of discussion about the dignity and vocation of women. And this continues and it, it has its place. But, but you know, and I know that looking out at congregations, we could say Catholic con congregations to stick close to where we're at, the participation of, of males is every bit as much, if not more threatened than, than that of females in our culture. And we can explore the reasons why, but, but I, it, I think it is it's, a reality. I think it's significant yeah. that just in, in the biblical sweep of, of the divine plan, these, these males are singled out uh, because it, it's a riskier proposition in terms of what, what's going to happen <laughs> to this guy. There's, there's something about carrying a child, raising a child that, that intrinsically grounds the life of, of a woman. The man's life is a question mark in a, in a, a more volatile way, in a sense. 
it would be rare to find a roving band of marauding women <laughs> on the streets of our cities, but but there are plenty roving bands of of disaffected males, mm. and that's worth pursuing in terms of just this this figure of Noah who is invited to build a home for his family, for his sons and their wives, and presumably in time, uh, their offspring. So in this respect, Noah is a further extension of the figure of Adam. So uh, from within Adam is the gift of his helpmate to show that from the beginning, the compatibility of, of male and female in the divine plan, especially as husband and wife, ultimately mother and father, is willed by God as normative for, for civilizational thriving and, and for giving him glory. But in the case of Noah, this is extended forward in the civilizational project of creating a, a household that can actually move above even as it finds itself within the tumults of the world. And I, I have to say in the past few months, I have all sorts of people coming to me in just unsolicited ways, telling me how, how anxious they are. They just feel that, that there's trouble in the air and the, the sense of, of security that people may have uh, hoped for, taken for granted, uh, has, has, has seemed to wane. Now, I, I don't know if this is watching too much cable news or reading obscure conspiracy blogs. I don't know. They're not worried about a flood or anything like that. Right. But the levels of anxiety civilizationally, they, they feel palpable. And, you know, and the, and the question becomes, what, what is the role of a man, um, any man, in the divine plan of, of bringing stability, order, self-sacrificial service for some greater good. I, you know, is it fair to say that, so God chose Noah for this, as you said, civilizational task. So therefore, Noah must exhibit some of the characteristics that, that God thinks are are good for men. Yes. And, and let's just start with such a basic one. He is asked to follow commands outside of himself. So he's given the plan for the ark, do this. And there's this aptitude to obedience in him. And he doesn't give in to you know, desires for, for rebellion or dominance. In fact, his life is one of invitation. He, he invites his neighbors to participate in this civilizational project. And then a second quality beyond this willingness to be taught and led by God is, is the quality of building that he, he uses his, his hands his mind to construct something. So the desire to, to build, and it, it's not to, it's not to juxtapose it in some type of 
bizarre way that, you know, well, women make babies and men build things. But it it's just to say that this creative power that is in men and women, the form that it takes, the very the very fact that the organs of generation are external to the male body. There's a meaning carried in that that can actually inform what men create in the external world around them. So in the case of Noah, this building project is his home. So it has an intimacy to it. He's actually not called to build, I don't know, let's say uh, a hotel. Yeah, he's, he's called to build a, a home, still less is he called to build a sports arena. He, he's actually given the task of, of building a household. And at the same time, this building task is a microcosm of the whole which is to say the, the fact that all of the, the animals are, are given a place on the ark in this mysterious way, the whole creation in, in all of its integrated parts is meant to participate in some way in the life of his home. So in other words, his home isn't primarily a man cave, uh, a place where he can just retreat. And I have nothing against man caves. I remember my grandpa, he would come back from being a manager at the corn processing plant and he would go in the basement, sit in his chair, he'd have a shot and a beer, take a, like a 40 minute nap, and then he would come up for supper and have a wonderful time with a family. So nothing against the man cave. But, but the project of man is actually greater than that. He in a sense, is given the task of reproducing the best, the whole world in the life of those entrusted to him. And, and we can see in, in Noah's family that the family is the, the primary cell of society, as St. John Paul the Great famously put it, civilization, salvation passes by way of the family. But in an extended way, Noah has a culture-forming task and a blessing that is also included in, in that, that microcosm of, of reality that is in his home. And in, in case that appears too abstract, uh, let's, let's make it a little bit more specific. A, a, a television set, uh, a computer screen, uh, a gadget, uh, uh, the iPhone, for example, each of those is a type of microcosm. Each of those is its own world. Each of those reproduces, in a sense, human civilization. And in the arrangement of those algorithms uh, that are tailored to our desire, they can create in our homes, in a sense, whatever we want. And in fact, we can make of our personal interior life and we can make of the interior life of our home a living hell, place of chaos and rebellion, of violence and dissipation. And the fact that 
Noah's project as received from God is not that. In fact, it's the antidote to that. And so to get to the point about the crisis of what it is to be a man today, the lack of tasks uh, available to men where they're actually using their bodies in an integrated way, where they can be exercising just real agency and and real responsibility and the uh, the co-opting of the male energies by the the light producing gadgets. <laughs> so something like pornography isn't just being hypnotized by a succession of images that that paralyze, et cetera. There's, there's also a, a spiritual demoralization that goes with that because the expending of the sexual energies on, on something that's not real, that's not generating any life, that's, that's not sacrificing, it winds up trapping people in the flood, the, the flood of images rather than exactly. Yeah. Then something that, that is being positively instructed. So I would say the, the greatest threat for men today is navigating the, the digital revolution because there's so, because each, each machine is accelerating a certain human skill or, or desire, but at the same time, causing other skills, other desires to atrophy. And, and so much of, of the strength that is, has been carried, you know, in, in the male body, the male psyche has, has just been co-opted. It, it's, it's been taken out of men by the world of, of the machines. So there's a, there's a kind of limited creativity that's constantly, whatever, programming machines to do more and more and more and more. But the, the whole trajectory of artificial intelligence is the, the sundering of body and soul. It's the disintegration of the, the primordial unity you know, among mind and heart and, and affections and feelings. So in, in the case of Noah, there's in the plan, the, not just the surviving of the civilizational apocalypse, but, but the participation in a greater promise. Uh, there's a kind of patriarchy that, that's at the end of the rainbow so to speak. And patriarchy isn't uh, the domination of, of men over other people, but rather it's a, a generous, generative, fruitful service of life within life within life and, and just the, the cascade of blessings through the, the generations. That's the promise that, that every man is, is made for. I mean, I'm sure, I guess, that that Noah would have been somewhat counter-cultural or maybe not, maybe only in his thinking or in his obedience of the day. But if we think about the culture of our day, 
it isn't really clear to me what the culture thinks great men are supposed to look like. I think I know and I don't like it, <laughs> but it's not throwing ourselves in front of danger. It's not providing for our families and leading our families through the flood, so to speak. It doesn't seem to be that at all. It seems to be sort of these technology connected, if not addicted, kind of amorphous, weak, spongy things. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I think you're correct. And that's, that's not beautiful. <laughs> that's, no, <laughs> there's no beauty there. No, there've been experiments, different pastoral initiatives. I'm thinking of, uh, Father Mark Bernard in uh, the Diocese of Rockford, Illinois, who, uh, started the initiative of, of just gathering the men of the parish early in the morning for physical workout and, and combining that with some intentional prayer and recovering a, a kind of integration between the body and soul. And I talked with somebody who knows this particular priest and he's now at his third parish and that band of brothers has continued at each of the parishes at which he's served, which that's the quality of a patriarch. So it's, it's not just a personal initiative that dies, you know, when the, the guy leaves, but it, it actually continues to generate life even even after he's gone. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a small thing, but it, it's intentionally calling men to be together. It's taking the body seriously. It, it's the context for a, a conversation about what sacrificial headship in, in their family needs to look like. And it, it gives men both support and a, a reaffirmation of, of purpose. And that is the way forward. Do you think that that desire for brotherhood or in the positive reaction to the opportunity for brotherhood, do you think that's one of the sort of fundamental absolutely. male characteristics absolutely. that current culture sort yeah. of tears down? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what attacks that it, it's, it's multifold. One would be there are fewer and fewer families that are having children at all. And within that, fewer families were having multiple siblings. So people's experience of growing up in a family with a brother or brothers, like I grew up with two brothers and one sister, that is being lost. And, you know, most famously in China, the one child experiment, that civilizational disaster produced a culture of, of narcissism, uh, just everything is, all the resources go into me and, and a kind of hopelessness that, that life can be passed on. So the, for example, in, in Japan, in Korea, the, the antenatal sentiment of large swaths of the, the population is, it's just frightening people losing the desire to have, to have children. And so that, that cascades. And, and again, in, in Noah's project from the Lord, 
who's in the ark? Noah and his wife, but the three sons and their wives. So brothers, you have three brothers. And in the wives that they marry, the connection to three other families. And so, you know, if you want, if I can coin the Noah challenge, you know, if, if every man could ask the Lord to give him three guys, he could love his brothers. Three. So it gets, you know, variety, but there's intimacy there. I, I actually think that would be crucial for the civilization saving project. That whole, let's call it, you know, engendered language of, of brother, sister has been eclipsed. And in the absence of it, there's this insecurity around language that is rooted in what it is to be a man mm -hmm. or a woman. Well, this idea that the greatest insult that could be hurled your direction would be to be toxically masculine. Correct. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember read, when I read even just masculine. Yes. <laughs> when I was first ordained, the marriage certificates that I signed had, they had five lines, one labeled officiant. That's me. Two labeled witnesses, best man, maid of honor. And the other two were bride and groom. And so with changing Supreme court decisions, cultural proclivities, the licenses that I now sign, there's one line that's still labeled efficient. There are two lines that are still labeled witnesses. And the other two lines are literally blank. And it, it's not even, well, in the government form, it's applicant one, applicant two. And to live in a world of applicants is about as happy as living in a world of consumers. We actually need an identity that's, that's rooted in something beyond just our choice. Our choices are lived in an embodied way. And so even just to recover the language of not just husband and wife, son, daughter, but mediated by brother and sister, that's crucial. And in the life of the priest, for example, having one's brother priests for support, there's no replacement for that. And I, I think that privileging opportunities in the church for men to discover their spiritual brotherhood, for women to discover their spiritual sisterhood is the way forward. And that's as simple, I suppose, as the variety of so-called men's groups with different charges and different kind of charisms and, exactly. but different opportunities based on, you know, an individual's temperament or interest or things. And in my experience, it's a little bit like a tree where there are new rings added continually, but the, you know, the tree remains there. So, you know, at our parish, you have the, the Knights of Columbus and you have the rekindle the fire group that grew out of Christ Renews' parish. You have armor of God. You have Holy League. All of these are attempts at proposing afresh what 
what spiritual brotherhood looks like. And they may take a certain form or format at a parish, but I, I, I still think the Noah challenge is worth pursuing for, for every man to ask the Lord, please give me the gift of three brothers. Could be an older brother, could be a younger brother, could be a brother my age, who can actually support what is best in me as I support what is best in him. It's a way beyond simply saying that male love or male affection you know, necessarily goes in a suspect direction, either a strangely sexualized direction or the direction of, of gang members. I mean, I, I remember I, when I lived in Italy in the late 1980s, early 90s, I would see men of all ages walking down the street arm in arm. So like two 70-year-old guys, and they would be walking arm in arm. And there was not the hint of anything sexually out of place, not at all. And, and in the case of, of men, like two guys in their 40s walking down the street arm in arm, or even two teenage guys walking down the street arm in arm, and, you know, little kids, like two little boys, maybe like seven seven or eight years old. At that time in Italy, culturally, that expression of male brotherhood was just embodied in that affectionate way. And it wasn't sexualized and politicized like, you know, like we would experience it today. There was nothing suspect or off about that. So the project of asking the Lord to strengthen our brotherhood is, is crucial. Now I have to say a word about the, uh, what happens to Noah after this project. So the ark, the ark lands on the mountain, the higher place and the rainbow comes out, which by the way, belongs to the Lord <laughs> before it's a political slogan. Um, it's a sign of the Lord's covenantal authority and fidelity. But, but at the end of Genesis chapter nine, Noah, Noah becomes a tiller of the fields. And so civilization advances. So we're not just herding animals on the move like Abraham, but, but civilization progresses and Noah harvests those grapes, ferments those grapes and he gets drunk and it, it becomes a, a kind of perversion of Adam's nakedness without shame. Noah is discovered by his sons in his nakedness. They have to put a, a sheet over him to cover up that shame. And so as civilization progresses, we, face the continual challenge of not allowing ourselves to be intoxicated by the work of our own hands. And that's timeless, right? That's it not is. unique it is. to technology today. That exactly. was grapes with Noah. Exactly. And it, yeah, there's something so elementally good wine, but the easy life that Noah creates for himself, if the horizon of male aspiration 
is just the easy life, the life of getting what I want, the life of, of not working, for example. What happens is we wind up getting drunk on our thing. success. Yeah. Well, I, you know, if you think of social media is littered with all of these schemes for passive income to, to make money without working, right. to be able to retire from making money without working at a very young age so that you could then do nothing right. or ever, I guess, and right. until you die. That sounds almost like a sentence of, <laughs> that's imposed on you. Yeah. and Because we're uh, not made that way. Are so we? in the book of Genesis, the, the command to work, to labor, was given before the sin of Adam and Eve, that command to till the garden, cultivate it. So labor is a gift from the Lord and it's punctuated by the Sabbath rest, uh, ultimately so that all of our work participates in this restorative contemplation, this restorative resting in God. That's the work of a lifetime. But in the case of Noah, he has to face the challenge until the day he dies of believing that the Lord's work in him is not exhausted, even in his failures, even when he feels ashamed at, at what he's done, how far, how far he's fallen. He, he still has a place in the plan. And in fact, Christ, Jesus Christ will become the new Noah the true Noah, the real Noah, which is to say the historical actualization of the figure of Noah. Why? Because with the first Noah, by means of the, the wood of the ark and the, the waters of the flood, there's the recreation of the world. And in the new Noah, Christ, by means of the, the wood of the cross, the waters of baptism, the Lord is forming his family anew and the church is, is this ever-expanding culture of human health, happiness, holiness, of thriving uh, for God, with God. And one, one final historical footnote, Noah, it's more of a textual note. The word ark in Hebrew is teba, and that word reappears in the book of Exodus in the little basket Moses is put in, uh, the little basket that's floated uh, down the Nile. And it's just to say that the figure of Noah sketches out, becomes, uh, you might say, a, a spiritual template to be realized through history in, in more and more specific embodied ways. So in a sense, Moses is also the new Noah, just as Christ is the new Moses. So in our own lives as men, the Lord is making each of us new Noahs in the new Noah, Christ. And Christ, when he builds the ark of the church, what does he do? He seeks out brothers. He seeks out the, the 12 apostles. He forms uh, a friendship with these men so that they can become patriarchs and, and serve 
the the divine plan within the the spiritual family of the church. And none of these men, by any stretch, were perfect. They were very flawed in most cases, including Noah and Moses themselves. Because I think it's easy to think as a man, oh, I've got my flaws, I have my proclivities to weakness, my addictions. I'm I'm not one of those great men. And in the case of of Noah, to reflect on the whole span of that story, so from chapter six of Genesis through chapter nine, and to think the whole time the Lord knew the limitations of Noah. He knew Noah wasn't perfect. He knew Noah was going to fail and his shame be exposed, et cetera, et cetera. But in the Lord's goodness, the Lord trusted him anyway and, and gave him the task. And in a certain sense, Noah's life is only going to be fulfilled, perfected, transformed and realized beyond himself. And in the life of every man, it's those to whom we give ourselves, those we serve, who are the, the lasting living legacy of the gift of manhood that we've been given. You know, I, I talk to mostly women in my professional life, but often, very often men, and I know you do as well. And when I think about when I meet men for the first time, sometimes you're immediately taken by, this seems like a strong man. This seems like a good man. And in, in my world, it's usually within the context of how he is acting towards his spouse. But I can think of sort of a list, a short list of characteristics, but I'm wondering what comes to mind when you think about the characteristics of men that are great to the level of, of Moses and, and Noah and, and others. For me, the, the word magnanimity, uh, magna anima, great magna, uh, soul anima, a greatness of soul. And physical strength is, is one thing, goes as far as it goes. It's, it's less valued, valuable today. But men who have a sense of purpose that they're seeking, they might not have everything figured out, but they're actively seeking. Men who have a network of support and also a, a, a network of of service that they're caring for that, that kind of generosity of spirit is, is admirable. And then of course, men who are prepared to sacrifice, to lay down their lives and that instinct that when there's danger, when there's, when there's trouble, exactly. And even if it costs them their whole life, that, so for example, in the figure of St. Joseph in the gospels, the fact that in the midst of the evil that would kill, would attempt to kill Christ's child, the fact that Joseph isn't intimidated by it, he goes right through it to protect. And even when he allows his plans to be changed by the Lord in the dream and to undertake this, this greater mission. So I'm, I'm in my profession, I often see men at their weakest. So whether it's the sacrament of reconciliation or anointing of the sick, dying or offering pastoral counsel when there's trouble. And for me, the quality of, 
of admitting that, that they need help and their willingness to change, to make the radical choice to do other than they're currently doing and, and to get the band of brothers around them to, to uh, help them in that, that for me just makes my heart sing. Wow. But I, it begs the question, uh, uh, as a parent, your parents raised a great man, mine, not so much, but uh, I hope the young men that I raised are great. They sure seem to be. But speak to, to young parents of young children, especially to fathers of, of boys. What's their role? How do they raise great men? I think to teach by example so to model for them in a very conscious, very deliberate way. So for Noah's sons to see Noah pursuing the Lord's plan for his life, you know, the number one indicator of whether children will practice the faith is what they observe their father doing. And that's not opinion. That's studied. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's a soci sociological uh, fact there. So I, I would say for husbands and fathers to visibly show their family that they are about the things of God in, in the divine plan. I also think modeling, especially for males, how to deal with uh, one's temper, how to deal with setbacks. So, I mean, in the woman's body with the hormonal ebb and flow of fertility, there's a different relation to the emotional life in a sense. For the man, it's often more <laughs> learned by trial and error. But to model for children what to do when one is angry, to announce like, you know, dad is getting really upset right now. We're going to need to go outside. We're going to need to turn on some music. We're going to need to do some push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks to give that anger a good place to go. So notice the father is acknowledging that there's like a threat to order and, and he's working through it himself, but also drawing, you know, his children into that. That way the father is neither a kind of, you know, Spock or Atticus Finch who like, you know, never loses his temper, nor is he just the volcano, you know, just throwing objects across the room. There's a kind of integration there. And I would also say when it comes to, when it comes to sports, to be very attentive at living the integrated life in the family. I, I worry a lot about sports becoming an idol, a substitute for the spiritual life. I distinctly remember a homily of yours many years ago in which you said, sports prepare you for life. It's not the other way around. Yeah. And, and that had a profound effect on me because I, I think there's a huge temptation there, not just among men, but I think we have a partic particular weakness, maybe the potential for a weakness to let, to let sports, you know, solve the adrenaline need. And I also think that, you know, the truth is sports are one of the few ways left to men to express themselves bodily mm. and to engage in competition in a way that, that doesn't kill the other person, but that really takes seriously the, you know, the contest of wills and the, you know, the, 
the, the clashing and of danger. Yeah. yeah. And so like all of that has its place, but, but for example, there are any number of people, and this is true even in my own family who go through phases of these travel sports teams where they become like a, like a caravan of old that they just, they, you know, they travel away from reality and this becomes a false center. And, you know, granted the family who does travel sports and, you know, who, who privileges the Lord's day and finds, you know, the mass on Sunday and, and orders life around the Lord's day as rest. Beautiful. But more often than not, it becomes a pseudo religion. And to understand that, to recognize there's a goodness here that it can be pursued, but it needs to be contextualized, needs to be refined. And then to be very attentive to cultivate the, the self-sacrificing human qualities that are in the man, the, the desire to serve, to lay his life down. So it's not simply to compete. It's, it's actually to give himself to something that's noble and and good. I've heard it said the measure of a man can be seen when it rains during his vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but we are modeling for our daughters and our sons, but especially our sons were modeling. Well, um, Noah had the 40 days and 40 nights <laughs> of rain and he didn't snap. He regularly sent out feelers of whether, you know, now is the right time to make the new proposal. And there's a dimension of prayer there in the life of, of the male, because a man who doesn't pray is basically left to his own resources. And we are so weak and we're just so pathetic left to ourselves. So for men to learn the art of praying and of, and of sending out in the case of Noah, it was the different birds, ultimately the dove to be receptive to those indicators of what the Lord's plan is rather than just forcing my plan at all costs. I think about the speaker, Jesse Romero. He's been to Fort Wayne many times and he's fascinating to listen to very high energy, if nothing else, but he does a great job of capturing this idea that men by design seek danger and, and, and seek the difficult and, that's great. And there is no more dangerous, difficult task than taking on evil and particularly protecting your ark, your family yes. from evil and, and not, not to overlook all of the evil threats. So yes. you, we, as men, we don't need to look very far for threats. They're yes. there in the yes. form of technology and pornography. And, you know, our homes are under spiritual attack. Noah seals the ark, like the <laughs> ark, the ark is sealed and Noah is not intimidated by the scorn of his neighbors <laughs> who make fun of him uh, uh, for his priorities. And, a great point. you know, he could have just imitated them and gone along and, and said, well, kind of rely on strength in suburban numbers. Everybody's doing it. Uh, but he didn't. He, he pursued the difficult good. He resisted the attractive evil. That, by the way, is courage, the virtue of courage, the power of pursuing a difficult good, resisting an attractive evil. And that saved himself 
it saved his family and it saved future generations. And, and that victory of love that we're given to carry is no small thing. Well, as we, as we wrap up, if, if tomorrow all of Catholic men throughout the church suddenly became the Catholic men they should be and could be, how would that look? What would that look like to you as a priest? What would you see that's different from today if people were so moved by your thoughts, which is quite possible, that they, um, that they have a conversion of heart and become the men they should be? Well, the spiritual exercise that comes from this podcast, given by the Holy Spirit, I didn't think of this going into it, is to beg the Lord for three brothers, three brothers. And I think if people saw men loving each other in ways that were ennobling, that, that were cooperating with the divine plan, that were actually building things after the heart of God, I think the world would become a lot more secure, a, a lot less agitated. And I think other people, women in particular, would come into their own. I, I think you would have a generation of young people a lot less afraid, a lot less self-absorbed, because they would, they would see that they're being lovingly attended to and, and that this project, this project of the ark is an amazing one. And it's greater than any of the evils of the world. And it's not intimidated by anyone. It, it, it's the discovery that we can actually ride the waves of the moment of history that, that we've been given. We can ride the waves. Men, I hope this discussion has uh, somehow resonated with you. Uh, take Father Dan's Noah's Ark challenge to heart and go find three other men with whom you can share authentic brotherly connection. Women, challenge the men in your life to take up this challenge. Our families need great men, and our country and our Catholic Church most certainly need great men to step up, maybe today more than ever. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as I have. I hope you'll plan to join us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Do you have a question that you'd like answered? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type after the homily in the subject line, or you can text me directly at 260-450-8878. And please start the text message with after the homily. And of course, a special thanks to our friends at Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media for producing this podcast. You can enjoy an endless variety of amazing Catholic content by visiting SpokeStreet.com. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.